We are in the third week of our current series for the new year, and we've been reflecting together. January is a time of new hopes and big dreams for the year ahead. And whatever those hopes and dreams are for you, we're all interested in a fresh start. I think we can all agree, especially given the last two years, we're all interested in a fresh start. This time of year can also be challenging as we settle into the long, cold winter time. And beyond all the obvious thieves of joy that are limited to this time of year, other thieves look to steal our joy in a more permanent way. And if we're not careful, they will. And we can find ourselves living joyless lives. Many people do. The purpose of this series is not to depress you, but to equip you to name those thieves and identify the strategies to help us guard against them. Thieves of joy. Thieves of joy are things like anger, fear, criticism, rejection, disappointment, disrespect, and the list could go on and on and on. Most all of us have these experiences and feel these emotions from time to time, and every time we do, they rob us of joy. We began this series by taking some time to look at one particular thief who turns out to be the biggest thief of all when it comes to joy. We said that the person who gets in the way of my joy the most is me. We also discussed a working definition of joy for this series and noted that joy is different than happiness. Happiness is a feeling. It's the feeling of contentment. And because it's a feeling, it comes and it goes. Joy, at least in the sense we're talking about it for this series, isn't so much a feeling as an experience. We experience joy at another level, a different level, a spiritual level, the level of our soul. We noted that we can anticipate and arrange and control happiness. We can even manufacture and manipulate it. And in that sense, happiness is, well, smaller than the sum total of who we are. Joy is an experience. It's an experience we enter into, and in that sense, it's bigger, much bigger than the sum total of who we are. And ultimately, what we're talking about is discovering our primary identity in Christ. Last week, we took some time to look at two of the greatest enemies to joy, the twin enemies of worry and anxiety. Worry is when we allow our mind to dwell on difficulties or troubles, real or imagined. And anxiety is a feeling of nervousness or unease. And they can both very effectively rob us of joy. This week, well, this week has the potential to be a bit more controversial. So I'm going to do my best not to upset anyone, or perhaps to upset everyone equally. But I will ask ahead of time for your grace and favor because the joy thief that I want to address today is a sensitive topic. It might be called the cultural environment 
in which we currently live our lives. The cultural environment in which we currently live our lives. And I guess you could approach this topic from a number of different perspectives. Some news outlets and websites creating toxic environments, leading more and more people on a descent into extremism. Corrupt government and business leaders diminishing the quality of life in the community and the country and fueling anger and cynicism among many. Rising incivility and a fragmenting of social mores and good order. An ever-growing list of us versus them issues to further and further divide us. Republican, Democrat, blue state, red state, masked, unmasked, vaxxed, unvaxxed. And unscrupulous people on either side of those divisions making money precisely by deepening the divisions. A spirit of the times and in some educational programs that seek to increase our stress and fear and guilt. Social media adding to the information and stress overload, hijacking the need for social interaction with something very artificial, contributing to an epidemic of loneliness. And of course, there's COVID. And COVID fatigue and the low level depression it induces. I, I'm not here this morning to tell you what to think about any of those issues. We're not that kind of church. I am here to reflect with you on how we can guard our hearts and safeguard our joy in the face of this vast and vastly sad scenario. To do that, we're going to take a quick look at a passage from the book of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. While the technology and information coming at us is unprecedented in human history, the stress that results from generational sin and global problems is nothing new. The passage we read from the book of Nehemiah gives us some solid wisdom and insight into finding joy even when we feel overwhelmed by the problems all around us. Nehemiah lived about, about 450 years before Christ, a Jew in exile from his homeland. Nehemiah served the king of Persia in a high position at court. And while serving in the Persian court, Nehemiah learned some sad news. The walls around his beloved Jerusalem were in complete disrepair. They had been destroyed and the Jews sent into exile, forced to leave their homes by the conquering Babylonians. When the Persians succeeded the Babylonians, the Jewish people were allowed to return to their homeland. However, the city of Jerusalem remained ruined and the city walls damaged and destroyed. City walls were very important at that time. They provided protection and defense against enemies. To lack walls would have been a source of shame. Without walls, a city could hardly be called a city. Well, as the story unfolds, Nehemiah takes matters into his own hands. He goes to great personal expense and effort to rectify the situation. He risked his life, sacrificed his own money, and put his reputation on the line in order to rebuild the walls. Overcoming his critics, he perseveres in leading the people of Jerusalem 
to join the project. It's an incredible example of vision and leadership. And if you're ever in a position to lead anything or anyone, it's worth reading or rereading the short story of Nehemiah. Anyway, the passage we're looking at today takes place after the rebuilding of the walls. Nehemiah gathers all the people together, and here's what happened. Standing at one end of the open place that was before the water gate, he read out of the book from daybreak until midday, in the presence of the men, the women, and those children old enough to understand. And all the people listened attentively to the law. The book referred to here is actually the first five books of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Many of the people in that audience that day were hearing Scripture for the very first time, or the first time in a long time, because Scripture had been lost sight of during that period of exile. As the crowds listened to the readings, they learned about the special relationship God wanted to have with the nation of Israel and the promises God made to bless Israel as a blessing, as a light for the other nations. Then Nehemiah said to the people, today is holy to the Lord your God. Do not be sad and do not weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. The people were weeping as they heard the word of God and came to understand its meaning. The whole story of Israel's history came crashing in on them that day as they heard about the sad mistakes and missteps of their ancestors, the selfishness and sin that brought such tragic consequences to the nation. Time and time again, early and often, God had sent his prophets to get the people of Israel back on track, to change their godless ways. But they ignored God and his prophets. They turned their back on his precepts. They worshiped false gods instead. And as a consequence, the enemies of the nation had been allowed to destroy the city and the temple and subject the nation to servitude and slavery. And here in this scene, the Israelites are feeling the full weight of all that sad reality. Their experience that day is our experience every day. In a 24-hour news cycle, in the age of the internet, that experience is our experience every day. We can watch Russian troop build up on the Ukrainian border by satellite. We can see the immediate aftermath of devastating tornadoes in Kentucky, even before the people who live there see it. We can watch a hostage situation at a Texas synagogue unfold in real time. All the problems of the world coming at us all the time, every day, can overwhelm our hearts. It can hurt our hearts. And God did not make our hearts to carry that kind of burden. Am I saying we shouldn't care? We keep our heads in the sand, live in a bubble? No, of course not. One of the values of our universal prayer, which we'll pray in a few minutes as we do each week at this point in the Mass, is that we remember the needs of the world. We acknowledge the people who are suffering, the disasters that are unfolding, the needs that are pressing those who have died, things that we can do largely nothing about. 
we acknowledge them, and then we give them over to God. Obviously, you can pray about it all anytime, every time sad or distressing news comes to your attention. And more than that, you can add power to your prayer. What does that mean? Well, it can mean lots of things. Everyone is concerned about escalating violence and homicides, and some people just get mad about it. But I know people in this parish who drive down to the Basilica every Friday morning for Eucharistic adoration to pray for peace. Everyone is saddened when it comes to the homeless, but if we should encounter them, we're just uncomfortable. We look the other way, but I know people in in this parish who prepare food for my sister's place, feeding dozens of homeless women and children on a regular basis. Everyone is sad about the inscrutable problems in so many places on the continent of Africa. It just seems to get worse and worse year after year. But those joining our missions to Kenya this summer will be able to help one village establish sustainable and profitable farming practices. Will it change Africa's problems? No, hardly. Will it change that village and the lives of those villagers? Absolutely. It's been called benevolent detachment. We don't say we don't care because we should and we do. And pretending we don't just hurts our hearts some more. Benevolent, meaning we act with kindness toward our own heart when it comes to all that which saddens us. Bringing it to prayer, of course, and perhaps adding power to our prayer in various ways too. But then, detach. We move on with our lives. That's a discipline. And like any discipline, it's got to be learned and practiced. Nehemiah talked about it this way. He said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Our ability to live in joy is the habit of relying on the joy of the Lord. His joy becomes our strength in the face of sadness and sorrow. How do we practice that? How do we get better at that? Well, that could be a whole message series in itself. I just finished reading a new book by my friend Chris Stefanik, who sets out nine rules to practice. Chris talks about giving thanks, practicing silence, loving yourself, having fun, engaging your whole self, including your body, making friends, resting, serving, reframing your mind in faith. The book is called Living Joy, and I highly recommend it. It's an easy read, it's a beautiful read, and it's very, it's entirely practical. Check it out. Our ability to effectively and joyfully live our lives in the face of so much sadness and sorrow that just keeps coming our way, and even more, our ability to share our joy with those around us is a great, great strength. It's a great strength because it's the Lord's strength.